Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. With the UK economy floundering and recession fears still looming, we discuss what is driving markets, whether market forecasts are at all reliable, and how we can tackle some of the behavioural biases that affect investors. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investing... Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week we're going to be discussing markets, forecasts, and how we can tackle some of the behavioural biases that affect investors. But firstly, before we get into investments, we wanted to send our thoughts to those communities and families impacted by the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. It's worth mentioning for those that feel they want to help that there are many emergency appeals that have now been set up, including for those in the UK, the Disasters Emergency Committee. So, Will, I'm sure you know what the first question I'm going to ask you is, but I'm going to ask anyway. What have we seen in markets this week that's notable for investors? Yes, well, Sarah's just starting on that note. Obviously, you've seen Turkish markets really seriously affected by that, as you'd expect, by that massive tragedy and continuing to unfold. But more broadly in markets, there's been a lot of economic data in the last week or so. Uh, You know, one of the things we've been talking about a lot in the last year is this kind of that remarkable change in monetary policy in the US, you know, five percentage points of increase in two-year real interest rates in the US in the space of a few months in the middle of the year. That's really something you'd expect to unfold over years, not months. And so everyone, including us, has kind of been waiting for the effects of that surge in interest rates. And often, as we, you know, we always talk about, you know, the effects in the market can be different or lagged, you know, or or, or lead the effects in the economy. Uh, And we just don't, this is the interesting thing, I guess, is that we don't really know how long it takes for those interest rates to affect, how long till we feel them in our mortgage costs. And in the US, it's even even more the case. And so the interesting thing about the data last week is that some were even speculating that the economy seems to be accelerating into the end of the year, which was really kind of like one of the sort of bizarre things. You're seeing the labor market data was extraordinarily strong. It is subject to giant revisions, I know. <laughs> and there was even a bounce back in some of the leading leading indicators. So that's really one of the debates. And there's even some people speculating that, you know, or are, are again arguing, is it true that higher interest rates actually lower inflation? Some people look at the correlations here and say that actually high interest rates seem to go up with inflation. So yeah, there's some confusion in markets at the moment. And you've seen this giant bounce, bounce back in risk assets so far this year, in part fueled by this, actually, that the, the US economy seems to be doing okay. Um, so a lot of the stuff that got dumped last year, you know, certain types of stocks and so on, have really been a you know, soaring at the start of the out of the start starting gate so far this year. So I'm going to ask you a harder question. Okay. Have we reached peak inflation? And what is the terminal interest rates? expect I'll dodge this but yeah no no it's, it is a good question and this is the one that's really you know vexing people I'll go back to that sort of thought one of the sort of interesting points of the debate at the moment is this idea that's become a little bit more popular in certain circles anyway that that rising interest rates doesn't actually cap inflation it, it can actually create it and yeah I mean it, it's one of these problems if you look at a chart and it looks like the two go up together but it's kind of you know you can some people argue, you know, it's like it's mixing up causation and correlation to a certain extent. So, you know, is it are the pavements wet because it's rained or the 
is it raining because the pavements are wet? Or are my miniature are miniature Dashens screaming because the door is about to be knocked on by the postman? Or does the postman knock because the, the Dashens are barking? And this is the difficulty. Am I confusing you? You're looking confused. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just actually <laughs> impressed by how impressively you've managed to dodge the answer by trying to lead us <laughs> waffly, up another interesting... Waffly, waffly, yeah, yeah, waffly, waffly. And the answer is we don't know. But I mean, I think there is an expectation in markets at the moment. You are seeing inflation come down in the UK included in the US. So a lot of the kind of um, forces that were pushing inflation higher seem to be passing a peak. There is now a much stronger expectation that inflation is coming down and that therefore you should start to see central bankers kind of not have to do the same level of interest rate rises that they did last year. The central bankers, on the other hand, are turning around and saying, look, the job's not done, uh, particularly in the US, you know, there's more to go and there's more interest rates coming. And the European Central Bank is still saying, you know, we'll guarantee another 50 basis point rise and in the UK too. But People are starting to forecast or doubt that that might be true. And actually in the UK, you know, people are starting to expect actually rate cuts before too long because the economic weakness and inflation. So there's a big disagreement between central bankers and markets at the moment. It's probably most visible in the US, but yeah, that's something of interest. So we're near the peak hopefully. And I think inflation is going to continue coming down. Yes. Excellent. Rob, maybe if I could bring you in here. Although Will tells us every week there are many possible outcomes and no one has a crystal ball. As investors, we want confident views on the future, don't we? This is surely what makes a good investor? Hi, Sarah. Yeah, it's a very good good question. And I think the natural inclination would be, yes, we want people who have confidence and very strong views, because that gives us certainty. It gives us also then a, a direction to sort of or something to support taking action. I guess the real problem is the second part of that is like, is, is this what makes a good investor? And I think history tells us that that's not necessarily true. And actually, in all the evidence that I have from a, a sort of behavioral perspective was, would also support that. So the thing that we're really, is really detrimental in any walk of life, investing particularly, is overconfidence. And the reality is there's many different, there's lots of biases. People sometimes like to list out all the biases we suffer from, and there's hundreds of them. But the important thing is how they manifest and what that means. And there's lots of them which end up manifesting and and coming together to make this overconfidence almost overbearing in some ways. And the issue for investors is, you know, markets in the short term to medium term are just very noisy. And, you know, the ability to predict those is difficult, if not, you know, some would some would say impossible, depending on how much accuracy you're looking for. And therefore, overconfidence can be very dangerous in that sort of environment, because you're often going to be led into places where you feel like you've got more accuracy and, and power than you necessarily do. You know, a good example, I guess, in this sort of context is probably inflation. The ability, I think, of anyone to accurately forecast inflation is, is pretty poor. Will, I don't know, would you would you agree there, I think, from the evidence that we've seen? Uh, yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, is there, I mean, I don't think there's any room for confidence on this, given the world's track record, the world's kind of best and brightest track record of doing this. But I mean, there is something about long-term inflation, which, you know, if those textbook relationships hold and the sort of less, the more unorthodox views about interest rates and inflation that I just mentioned aren't true, which I don't think they are, then there is a sort of maybe a predictability to longer term inflation if theory holds and central Mm -hmm. bankers are able to control our expectations of inflation. But in the short term, it's about shocks, isn't it? Just like Mm -hmm. the last few years kind of talk about, you know, that's why forecasting is so difficult, not just 
inflation, right. but everything, yeah. because shocks come along, you know, the pandemic, not just the pandemic, but the policymaker response. None of this has ever been seen before in the context that it hits us. And so therefore, there's always this sort of, you know, this, I, I do find sometimes the chiding of forecasts. It all came out the other day with the IMF, didn't it? So, yeah. Well, I think there was a certain politician who turned around and said, well, the IMF's got as good a track record as Channel 4 racing tips. And, you know, in a way, like, yeah, it's fine. But that's the same as all forecasters. If you look at IMF versus all forecasters, and actually, mm. if you look at what they're saying about the UK, they're actually at the, more, the brighter end at the moment. Yeah. Then I think the degree of miss forecasters Cast mist is roughly the same. It's quite large, yeah. but yeah, all forecasts are rubbish. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, that it's interesting. And I think, far, yeah. actually, well, I think <laughs> most people would agree with you, actually. Yes. But, it's, it's, but you that know, doesn't mean you shouldn't trust experts. Obviously, that's the next bit that's important, I think. Yeah, no, you're right. And, Rob, kind of what I wanted to ask is if we all know that, that we can't predict the future, then why are these so these sorts of predictions so appealing and so convincing? Again, it's you know it's a very for me anyway it's a very interesting question. Maybe not for everyone, but like you say, I think most people would acknowledge that there's a lot of uncertainty in markets and, and the economy, or at least the majority of investors. However, that doesn't stop us being tied to those sorts of strong opinions that are that are out there and forming them ourselves. And part of that. I guess, comes from our desire for certainty and the ability that kind of stories or what we call narratives have to affect how believable essentially we, we, we think something is. So if you've got a selection of what seems like possibly quite random, not fully random, but quite random enough that we don't necessarily see what the patterns are, mm. data points, but you can weave them together in a story that makes sense, then that is going to be very appealing to us because it, it gives us some level of certainty in an otherwise fairly random mm. system. And we don't deal necessarily very well with that because it's what you do. What you do with the randomness is very difficult to do anything. And I think the other piece that's really interesting is also hindsight and how we evaluate decisions or even predictions, I guess, of, of the past. When we look back on events that have turned out and we know how they've resolved, we often tend to think, that they're more obvious than they actually were. Mm. And we're all susceptible to this, some more than others. But what that then does is it makes you think, oh, well, that means in the future, these things should be more Absolutely. predictable than they are because actually looking back, that was surely, that was obvious. Well, it'd be too too exhausting to study history as a series of kind of counterfactuals to the mean of what could happen. But yeah, you're right. I mean, but for me, what's really interesting, and as you said at the, at the top of the podcast, Sarah, you know, our thoughts are obviously with all those affected by the, the recent events. But something links here is that actually we have an example where so there's a Dutch researcher, and I'm going to say researcher in, in sort of air quotes, who made a prediction of the earthquakes in a very similar region of Turkey, only I think in December of last okay. year. So, so very recently. And that individual quite obviously has some press coverage and now has I think millions of followers on, on social media. But the rationale for, for why his prediction was accurate was based on celestial bodies being in the right sort of location so planets being aligned and this sort of thing which most scientists you know and geologists would agree has no real scientific basis and merit so therefore it's more likely that it's more luck than judgment but it's just interesting that you see that and you see a lot of people gravitating to those sorts of views and, and statements just like we see and it's the same in the finance industry you know there will always be people who will have predicted something possibly because either it's spurious luck or because if you say the same thing repeatedly for long enough, it will come true. 
Yeah, Rob, that's very interesting. Well, maybe you can corroborate this. We often get questions about why we don't make bigger changes in investment strategy, given that the outcomes ahead are somewhat obvious. What would you say to that? Are the outcomes ahead ever obvious? <laughs> I think that would be the way. And also, you know, I mean, so there's a number of things there, I think. And just on just on Rob's point, you know, in a way, like thinking about forecasts, I always think, or that some one useful way to think about it, you know, that's why we get so absorbed by this idea of you see a single point forecast, you know, the UK is predicted to grow by this amount and everyone focuses on the number. Actually, it's important to focus on the analysis. The numbers almost is not that important in a way. It's the analysis that goes into that. And I guess that also hints at why we or why we don't sort of react that much often. So if you think about the way we organize investments and, you know, regular listeners will be very familiar on this, that, you know, the, the, the overwhelming majority of your assets are organized by something, a process called the strategic asset allocation, which is an attempt to imagine, you know, hundreds of thousands of different futures ahead and find the mix of assets that sits, sits most robustly in all of them. Now, as that future comes to pass and becomes closer, we have mechanisms for trying to take advantage of the differences and the ways that we think that, you know, that markets are getting it wrong or maybe just offering incentives where, you know, we think that's uh, that's worth taking. And we can do that through, you know, our manager selection process or the way we pick funds and organize them under the under the hood. You know, you guys will have heard from Ian Elwood and others. Yep. And also the tactical asset allocation. Now, the point about this, though, and it comes back to quite a complicated concept. I always find it so difficult to, to explain and to get people to understand in the way that, because it took me a long time to sort of really understand that. And, it, you know, I think all of us who sort of are close to markets, but it's this idea of efficient markets, this idea that actually most of what you see in the newspapers, most of what you see, that's already incorporated into prices. The example I always use, which doesn't actually seem to resonate very much with anyone below the age of a certain age. It's the Challenger 2 shuttle disaster, where you found that through a mix of inside information and very efficient dissemination of information, markets were on top of who, in terms in company terms, was at fault for the, I think it was booster rings, it was booster rings problems or resilience of uh, booster rings. Um, and it was Morgan Thiokol, wasn't it, that ended up being punished by an investigation that took six months. And it took markets about three and a half, four minutes to come to the right conclusion. And actually, they were weirdly right about it. So that's the threshold. And what you've got, if you think about it, is you are up against, as an individual investor, you're up against hundreds of thousands of full-time professional investors who are looking for nothing but that little edge, that information that's going to give them an edge over the rest of the market. Highly incentivized people. Now, if you think that is why new information is incorporated very quickly, and that is also why, in a way, what you're not doing is changing lots all the time because you're, you know, you're chasing a dream in a sense. So the big high conviction stuff, you know, the kind of let's go all in this, all out of that, that tends to be the stuff of myth and legend as Rob talks about. And actually, eventually, that's really what we want to avoid. And again, if you talk to the manager selection guys, and Rob and I have just been doing a, an offsite with those guys in the last few days, and what they talk about a lot in how they analyze funds about culture and that is one of the things they really look at is you know how do you avoid the overconfident person getting too con too convinced of their own omniscience and omnipotence uh, and actually starting to bet as if they do see the future better than anyone else because they've had a run of good luck or good performance or something so it's all about the controls against that to make sure that you haven't got those kind of individuals who are able to wreak havoc quite a long-winded answer but does it cover most of it 
No, it does. And um, Rob, I'd love to bring you in here as well. So as investors, what can we do to try and protect ourselves against forming strong views and then potentially taking significant investment decisions where, as Will's nicely told us, we shouldn't take too many decisions. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's several things you could do as an individual, but also that, you know, we think about from a team perspective here in terms of how, how do we make sure we make the best decisions. And one of those is something that Will's kind of alluded to. The first one is really around those forming those strong views is, is around thinking probabilistically, which means, you know, thinking that there isn't just one singular outcome that's going to happen. There's a likelihood of various different ones and it's weighing those up. And that then gets you kind of out of this need to sort of ask, well, what if we're wrong? Because we, you're already sort of engineering into the process that you know there is no one right answer. Challenge is possibly one of the most important things. It's how do you get challenged to those views? So there's biases. We talked about confirmation and overconfidence. How, how do you try and shake those up a little bit? And that's the sort of thing we have you know, built into our investment process to make sure we force ourselves to challenge the other side of those views and those opinions and answer some of the questions that, that maybe are more difficult. Something we call pre-mortems, which are really interesting, I think, which is before you've made a decision, you imagine that you've made the decision, you've made the, the choice, and then think about, then you have to think it's, it's gone wrong. Why, why has it gone wrong? And it kind of forces you to analyze, you know, what are the, again, what are the outcomes that maybe you're not predicting or thinking about that could derail your plans? And often then you end up creating lots of interesting scenarios that might not have necessarily been uh, been considered. The thing here and all, that runs through all of these things is really humility. Humility is is key with any sort of decision making, especially when uncertainty is as high as it is in in markets. Knowing what you know really kind of helps you to tackle and understanding that. And it's really kind of, I guess, part of our philosophy, Will's already alluded to to some extent in terms of not wanting to rely on one strong kind of view because that essentially carries a lot of risk for you whereas you want to recognize that there are you know different outcomes and try and manage risk by managing across what those potential outcomes could be i also think like just on this i've always come back to this kind of like there was a very good example of this when an unnamed quite famous hedge fund manager came in to see us just before the US elections when President Trump became President Trump. Okay. He wasn't inaugurated, sorry, but it was when, you know, he won the election. And he had come in. And I remember, I think this was, a, what, was it 10% probability in the, yeah. according to the pollsters? You know, so it was a low probability event, but not unthinkable. It was much expected that Hillary Clinton would win and so on. But we know the future turned out differently. Now, this hedge fund manager came in and said, you know, very confidently, Trump is going to win. President Trump is going to win. We think it's going to be President Trump. Now, so he got the prediction right. You think, oh, God, that's the first thing. And it's super important. I should listen to everything said. But then he turned around and said, look, you know, the market reaction is going to be horrible. You know, you listen to the campaign trail patter. This is protection. You know, some of the things that did turn out to be correct. But there's a particular policy package, which is going to be very bad for this and that. And he his exact prescription of what the market reaction would be, the opposite happened. So he got the prediction right, but the market re reaction entirely wrong. And so in a way, that's not to criticize that particular hedge fund manager. You know, his job is kind of a, in some part, high make predictions, yeah. make predictions and make big positions and try and sort of, you know, make money out of them aggressively. That's why we have some of these quite the same kind of guys, but some of these kind of types of funds within our, you know, multi-asset class funds and portfolios. But the difficulty is, it's that humility point in a sense that even if you know or think you know, a sort of low probability event is actually going to occur. You've then got to make a series of assumptions, high conviction assumptions about what's going to happen afterwards. 
which is almost never. So effectively, I mean, what we're saying is we always want to have some level of doubt over our beliefs, mm-hmm. almost to make sure we're not needing to rely on a completely unrealistic level of certainty to be successful. Well, maybe we're into this place. What can we do to embrace this in our investment process? What is it that you and the team are doing? So buy more crystal balls is always the thing that I sort of think. (laughs) There's other things as well. No, so I mean, I think the things that we do, and Rob's talked about this, so Rob and team are key in terms of informing our behaviors. So they watch us very carefully. They're the behavioral police for us. And they make sure that the way we make decisions and the way we order meetings is quite important and keeps that humility and also minimizes key person risk. You don't just want to be dependent on one person. As you know, we've built up the advantage of being in such a big global organization as we are, is that you get the ability to call on lots of teams of specialists and bring them together. And so that's really, I think, the main lesson about how we do things is making sure that we have lots of teams of specialists focusing, really making sure that they know as much or as more than anyone else in that area and are able to deploy that expertise in that area. But also, I think the way that we organize investments, it is diversify. That's the really kind of, you know, diversity is the investing equivalent of humility. And that is diversifications and diversity as well and diversity as well well no no it is a good point actually and this is kind of you know that's something else to think about is that what you don't want is a load of people from a certain background color creed whatever sitting around a table and violently agreeing with each other that's the groupthink problem you know what you want and how we've designed our teams here is you get lots of different viewpoints lots of different backgrounds nationalities as much as possible so that they can look at the same data point the same piece of information and actually think a little bit differently about it and come to slightly different conclusions and that's the way you have kind of robust debate robust investment decisions and hopefully uh, over time you know robust investment outcomes which is really what we're aiming for for clients and i think just to kind of assuage Fears is maybe the wrong, but but for people who are obviously Have investing with us, no, no, no. <laughs> but in terms of how that actually manifests, I think it's, it's important to reflect on the fact that you know we we obviously still have opinions and have yeah. views and we want to express those but it's maybe worth mentioning that we'll talk about our tactical investments that we make that reflect that but they're the size of those in comparison to yeah, yeah they're to, at the edges they're at exactly. the edges they're aiming sort of you know both that and manager selection in many ways are aiming to add little performance cherries on top of already hopefully a very attractive strategic asset allocation cake I knew you were going to say the word cake. <laughs> well, and it's lunchtime. It's, it's, it, is, it is. And I can't think of a better time and place or picture to end. So thank you very much, Rob and Will, for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. That was an interesting discussion. Looking forward to joining you again next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.